coming. You are welcome. And we praise God for what you're doing in East L.A. Well, we have a we have a treat. We have a treat. Uh, we're going to have a series of speakers throughout this month, and we're going to kick it off with someone who's near and dear to my wife and myself. It's her baby brother, uh, my little brother, uh, David Rimstead. And about seven years ago, they went on a quest to plant a church in the jungle. They felt a call from God, and they were obedient to that call. They had no idea what it looked like. They had no resources. They had not a dime in their pocket. All they had was a call from God that said, go. And from that place they went, and each step of the way, God met them in miraculous ways. They went to Papua New Guinea, and they found themselves in a people group that they called the Maliali people. They basically, you can't even fly there. You have to helicopter there. And they helicoptered down. I remember seeing just the helicopter when they got off of the helicopter and just the people that were there. They have no written language. They had no alphabet. They had not seen anyone outside of their own people group. And they speak their own language just in that village. And so this is not only an unreached people, it's an unengaged group. So they started from ground zero. They had to build their own house. They had to learn the language. They had to learn the customs and the culture. And then from that place, they then had to begin to develop the gospel narrative in their own language. And so they had to learn it, they had to create it, and then they had to write it. And so this brother, along with their team, they would sit and they wrote out word for word. Bible books, Bible passages that help to frame the narrative of the gospel from beginning to end. And then they sat in classrooms and they taught these people their language in written form and taught them how to read a language that they had never seen or read before. All with the intent to finally get to God talk. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for seven years, they did that. Now, what you don't know is that's miraculous in that amount of time. If you knew, if you know my, my, my brother, um, I love him. He ain't the smartest guy in the toolbox. <laughs> and seriously... This is real. God gave him a supernatural ability with linguistics. He understood language and framed it in such a way, in such a quick amount of time, that the missionary teams and leaders were like, this doesn't happen. God demonstrating his power through weakness. The glory of God on display through him and his wife and their family. And so he's here with us today. And they have gotten to the point, and I'm not going to ruin it, where they finally got to proclaim the gospel. But that journey has been a tough and a hard one. So many trials, 
so many tribulations. And the point where they were getting to where they were ready to present the gospel, they dealt with a heavy load of satanic attack, demonic attack. And it was right during the time that we were preaching through spiritual warfare. And God used that time to just encourage them in that process. And so now they find themselves here back in the States, just going through some respite, some healing, and really looking to God to kind of give them a continual direction for the way forward. But I'm hoping that he does share just how they got to the point where the Malayali came to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. My little brother David, his wife Emily, she's not here. They have three children, uh, Calvin, we call her Wheezy, uh, Louise, and then Izzy, their little baby girl. And they're not here with us today. But this man right here is a giant. No one knows his name. He has no great fanfare, but both him and his wife are heroes. And they will be lauded in eternity for the thing that they have done. And so I just want you to feel the gravity of a family and a man who has truly seen treasure and given up everything that other people might find that treasure. Without any further ado. My little brother, David Winston. Y'all are dismissed. I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what to say. I'm not sure. That was... um... More than enough. More than enough. Thank you. Um, Living way for being a part of the journey that God has put uh, my family and our coworkers. On You have been with us even before we even knew Malayali existed. And I'd like to properly thank you in due time, but I just want you to know right off the bat, I am so incredibly privileged to be here this morning. So incredibly grateful that you came alongside our family, seven, eight Nine years ago, as we started to raise support to go overseas to proclaim the gospel where it hadn't been proclaimed yet, and you joined us. You partnered with us, and you have financially sustained our ability to stay in Malayali. We are so, so thankful. Thank you so much. But this is the beginning of your missions month. And I am so incredibly excited to give you what the Lord has given me. And see, you see, we came back and um, like Pastor Ray said, this last season was one of the hardest seasons of our lives. It was so incredibly complex with so many details that I won't be able to go into this morning. We just don't have enough time. 
And so this morning, I want to just share with you what the Lord has done in the Maliali work and with us, the Rimsteads, in Maliali. But there's, there's three things, I think, at the end of this, these three things, if we could say this was accomplished, then it's a, it's a, a job well done. I think I, I want our hearts to beat like our Father's heart is beating for the nation's. I want our hearts to beat the same as our Father's heart is beating for the nations. I want us to see the absolute beauty and wonder of the person and work of Jesus Christ among the nations. And I want you to joyfully receive the news and hear the story of what God has done among the Malayali people. When we began to teach, like Ray said, I wrote down a quote from one of our oldest men. We had prepared 53 lessons in total, and those 53 lessons span the distance between Genesis to the book of Revelation, and we wanted to teach them the chronological story of redemptive history. And in the very beginning, on lesson two, my grandfather, Pisu, or my dad, technically, Pisu, sat down with me, and, and we're talking about the lesson, and he says, and he says this, He said, these mountains that are surrounding us have been covering us. Our parents taught us in the darkness, and they didn't know what was true. But now you all are digging us out, and I am starting to see the light. The light is coming, and I am able to see the truth for the very first time. Thank you. Friends, we need clarity in regards to God's mission. The church just doesn't flounder because of a lack of definition regarding the mission of God, but the mission of God to reach the world stalls and gets deprioritized in most churches because of a lack of clarity. Churches give their time and their resources to local ministry, but sadly they forget what the actual mission of God is. They work tirelessly in the trenches of their city, but they have no regard or focused prayer in regards to the nations that will never hear the gospel unless someone goes and preaches the gospel for the very first time. Call it a revival, if you will. But we need definition. We need clarity for the church regarding the mission of God. As it did a thousand, or as it did thousands of years ago, the mission of God still exists today. And his mission is this that he, among all peoples without distinction, in every language spoken and among all the nations that he would be made known where he currently isn't. 
That his glory residing in his church would fill up and fill out the earth completely with the knowledge of him. You see, our job, our proclamation begins with announcing that the kingdom of God has come and salvation through the Son is freely and readily available to all who would bow their knees before him as king. And after the gospel is received, our mission in that particular location ends and our ministry begins as we begin to teach those brand new kingdom citizens what it's like to live in the family of God and what it's like to have a brand new occupation because the work that God is doing is now becoming the work that we ought to do. That his heartbeat for the nations would be our heartbeat for the nations. That our desire would be to see him proclaimed, the knowledge of him fill the earth where it currently isn't. We would be occupied as image bearers, filling out the earth with the knowledge of his glory and seeking to be occupied by advancing the borders of his kingdom locally and expanding his boundaries globally, that his rule and his reign would fully encompass the earth, and the knowledge of him would be made known. Where there is darkness, the light of his kingdom will dawn, and there, where the light of his kingdom has risen, that sun will never set. His mission should be our mission, his heart that is beating to be made known among the peoples who do not know him. That should be our heartbeat as well. And yet there are thousands of people groups who will never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because someone is embarrassed or not because someone is unwilling to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with them, but because these people groups have a language that has never been spoken outside of their tribal context. There's no one on this planet that knows their language in order to present the gospel to them clearly in their language. Thousands of groups, because of their language, will never hear the gospel unless someone goes to them, lives among them, learns their language, so that one day, hopefully, they could clearly, articulately share the gospel with them for the very first time. Friends, Pasadena needs you to live as if you are missionaries. But make no mistake, the nations need actual missionaries. Men and women, families, singles, people that are willing to die on the foreign field. Not a physical death, but a more valuable death. One that you die to yourself in order to live among the people, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to them for the very first time. In order to see the borders of his rule and reign expand among people groups who remain, who have not heard his message yet. I don't know if you know this, but God truly does have a mission. And his mission from the Old Testament through the Gospels and now into this New Testament period, his mission has never changed. And most importantly, for us, for the here and now, God's mission isn't finished There in lies this 
eschatological reality. Therein lies this, this future reality of missions that I want to draw our attention to, specifically starting in Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9, but there is a reality to mission that I think should be our heartbeat. There is a future reality regarding his mission for the world that should dictate every decision that we make. All the resources we've been given, any budget that we are the authority over, any agenda that is being talked about or written down on paper, this future reality of missions should dictate our lives. This future reality of God's mission is not Revelation 7, 9. Now, don't get me wrong, Revelation 7 9 is a high-tier driving force for the mission of God that all peoples, tribes, tongue, and nations would surround the throne of God and they would sing his praise. That is a driving force for missions. But that is not the reality that I would like to draw your attention to today. I don't believe that should be our driving force this morning or this month. This future reality regarding his mission is this. His mission will end. His mission will end. And it will be and it will end because he is the one who will complete it. This future reality of his mission, what should drive us, what should begin to have our hearts beat in line with his heart that is beating is that his mission one day will end and he will be the one to complete it. This is sure. Whether it happens in our lifetime or one day in the future, according to his glorious will and meticulously predetermined plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth, his mission one day will end. And he uses his church to bring it about. A mission to bring light in the darkness. And this news, this good news, will not just fizzle out over the years. No, no, no. It will gain momentum. It will spread like a garden, restoring, renewing, and redeeming all that has been damaged, destroyed, and disregarded. It will spread and cover the earth, this kingdom will be made known among all peoples, both locally and those who have been scattered since Genesis chapter 10. He is going to do this. And he promises he will do this in Isaiah chapter 9 as Isaiah prophesies to the people of Israel. We rightfully echo Sweet Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she replies to the angel for the very first time and she says, how will this be? How how is this going to happen? This is the rightful posture. This is the rightful response of mere humans gazing at the marvelous light of a truly excellent God. How? You're going to finish your mission. You're going to do this. How? How are you going to do this? How is this going to look? 
God's mission will be accomplished according to Isaiah chapter 9. His future mission in Isaiah's eyes of looking to the future, God will accomplish his mission because he is zealous to do so. He's consumed by it. It's clear as crystal. It's sure as the rising to the setting of the sun. He is going to accomplish his mission. One day his mission will end. He is going to finish it. We could bank on it because he is zealous to do it. He is passionately, fervently, earnestly, energetically, purposefully, intensely, single-mindedly zealous for its end. And this is where Isaiah begins his prophecy. Where God's mission would first begin geographically. Isaiah is giving the people of Israel a foreshadowing, a sense of, hey, listen, this invasion is going to come and it is going to completely destroy you cut you off because of your sinfulness and your lack of repentance. But there will be one day in the future where your joy will be unending. Where his kingdom and he himself on his throne will reign with justice and righteousness forever and ever and ever. You can bank on this because he is zealously pursuing its end the place of origin for his mission is found in verse 1 where will god begin his mission isaiah says but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of zebulon and the land of nephtali but in the latter time he will be made he will, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the jordan the galilee of the nations the mission of god will begin where the invasion will start Isaiah, through the instruction of the Lord, is declaring to the people of Israel, because of your sinfulness and the lack of repentance, because you continually follow the way of the nations, because you continue to set up idolatry, um, idolatrous statues and shrines and worship everything other than Yahweh, your king, he is sending an invasion to come into the land to take you captive and carry you off. Not only will you be carried off, but as you pass through the land, you will be hungry, looking for food, but you won't find it. You will need rest and safety, but as captives, you won't find it either. You will be cast into utter darkness. A thick intensity of darkness that you will not find rest there. You will be utterly cut off from God. And their true and satisfying joy or whatever joy remained at this point will be completely quenched. They will look to God in contempt, blaming him for the calamity on their heads. But Isaiah says this. Where the invasion began, specifically these outer territories of Israel, Zeblon and Nephtali, that is where the light will dawn first. Isaiah tells us God's mission 
will begin in these two places. Not only do we have the place of origin, but we have the priority of his mission. Look at verse 2. These lands of Zebulon and Naphtali, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of darkness, on them light has shone. We not only understand the place that the mission of God is going to begin, but we understand the priority of God's mission, that he is not just going into the light to become a brighter light. He is not going into places that already have his knowledge. He is going to the deep and utter darkness of his people. In the land of utter darkness, in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned on the people who not only lived in darkness, but walked in darkness. In these latter days, a light will dawn on the people who are now residents to these two places. We can see where his mission is going to begin, and we can see the priority of his mission And that is to go into the darkness, to begin where the invasion started. Because where there is utter darkness, there is no light. And where there is no light, the knowledge of God is not present. And where the knowledge of God is not present, they have no hope. Thousands of people groups that exist today that are in absolute, utter darkness. For many of you, maybe you don't know this, but we had to find the Malayali people. We had to find them. Previously to us even arriving in Papua New Guinea, years prior, we had men hiking through the mountains of Papua New Guinea, specifically the Sepik region, region, and trudging through the swamps of the Sepik River, documenting people groups that were cut off from the gospel, documenting people groups that had a completely different language. And all they could do was just write down the coordinates and move on. The Malayali people had to be found And prior to them being found, we did not know that they even existed. They were cut off because of their language that was completely undocumented. They were unengaged. And arriving in Papua New Guinea in 2015, our family, along with our co-workers, spent that year learning the national language with this Melanesian talk pigeon and learning the culture of Papua New Guinea. And then after testing into fluency in regards to that language, we were given a massive stack of papers with numbers. And our leadership team said these numbers represent the people groups that have been contacted but have no available access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One, because of their remoteness. And two, they have a language that has never been spoken outside of their tribal context. So we want you to pick one. Man, you better believe that forced us to pray. Holy moly, we beg the Lord. I mean, we're going to survey some of these people. Just help us pick one. Help us survey one of these. And he did. After praying and finalizing logistics, we chose our first location to survey. And in September 15... 
15, 2016, we made our first contact with the Malayali people group that prior to this, we had no idea that they existed. We flew into a semi-nearby airstrip. It took two days worth of traveling. I was puking the entire way. It was the most ridiculous hike. I was completely out of shape. The Lord bent me every which way, disciplined me heavily, but we finally made it to Malayali. And we decided, this is our people. This is where the Lord is going to have us return. And eight months later, May 5th, 2017, we had teams come and help us build our houses so that we could live among the Malayali people. I'm telling you, we visited churches and people that looked at us before we even arrived in Papua New Guinea. And we even felt it. This seems a bit too ambitious. You need how much money? You're going to fly in what? To where? I bet there were so many individuals that just thought, y'all are crazy. You guys are crazy. We, my wife and I, were sitting together. And we even looked at each other and we said, how in the world did we end up here? It blew our minds. But after completing our houses, which were, we cut down trees, we milled the wood, and and from there we got nails and hammers, and we worked with the Malayali people to build these plywood fortresses, these, these houses that we could live in and live off of solar panels and rainwater that's caught on the roof that goes under our house and we have a pump just a glorified tree house with running water <laughs> and when those houses became livable our co-workers uh and uh, the rimstead family we moved in and we began we began learning the language of the malayali people for the very first time we, we didn't know their language there was no rosetta stone this language has never been written down it's it's oral language. The, really, the first time we heard the language was when we stepped foot in Malayali. And we didn't know what the heck they were saying at all. So we would hear a word. Neguepe, nay. And, okay, let's write that down. How, how do you think that sounds? I don't know. Is that an N? Yeah, I think that's an N. Is there a G in there? Yeah, maybe there's a G. And over time, words really sounds turned into words and words turned into phrases which turned into sentences which turned into paragraphs which turned into stories which turned into testing into fluency but we began to live among them to learn their language to hopefully share the gospel with them for the very first time and as we began to live among them and learn their language, we, we, we began to understand their culture. We began to understand them as people, that they are living, that they were living in constant fear, dominated by fear, believing the myriad of ancestral stories and teachings. They tried their best to appease the spirits surrounding them, but always saw that they fell short 
so fearful that the spirits would then come because they weren't properly appeased and they would cause harm. Or in their words, they would be eaten by them. Malayali people lived in constant fear, dominated by it. Not only did we see fear, but we saw blindness. We began to learn that the Malayali people were dangerously blind. Not physically blind, but they were only able to believe their ancestral stories because no other talk, no other theory, no other thinking existed in their language. Think about that. The only stories, the only sources of information that they ever received were only from their ancestors. What else would they believe? So incredibly blind. Because nothing else existed in their minds. I remember sitting with my best friend and his father, father's older man. And I couldn't properly understand everything that's coming out of his father's mouth. So my friend is helping me understand. And I was blown away as so young as a language learner. And my best friend looked at me and he said, wait, 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 wait. So are you, are you saying your parents never taught you about Kaifu? That's the God that they worship. And I said, nope. And you could see his mind start turning. And he looks at his father and he says, his parents never taught him about Kaifu. And the father just shook his head and said, man, what horrible parents they are. <laughs> they, they just didn't know. They didn't know that anything existed outside of their own ancestral teachings, completely blind. And you know the saddest part about it? They were not able to naturally perceive or discern, discern so they themselves are literally stuck, but they don't know it. Blindness. Man, we got to see oppression. We began to see that the Malayali people were dolefully oppressed, sorrowfully under the burden of brutal spiritual and physical abuse. I didn't know oppression, both in the spiritual and physical sense, until I met the Malayali people. As a people, they were convinced that the spirits under every rock residing in every tree, resting in every source of water, blood thirstily roaming around at night to pray and sport the Malayali people for food, that then necessitated their actions of when to come out of their houses, what to plant in the gardens, how to walk on the trails, how to interact with each other. Hurt people hurt people, but the oppressed oppress. How they viewed themselves and how they treated each other. Utter darkness. So dark. Thick. Thicker than night. I say we began to live among them, but I think it would be better to say we began to endure hardship in their eyes and persevere through it so that their eyes one day may spiritually be opened we endured and persevered 
in the shadow of death. You see, those who enter this kind of darkness will need to endure hardship that come, and they will need to persevere for the salvation of the people that they are living among. Sharing the gospel so that we can leave is not the strategy. Sharing the gospel necessitates a long-term strategy so we can not only teach them assurance and clarity and conviction in regards to Scripture, but the joy that resides therein. We knew we would need to endure much for a task this big, but we were naive to how much we would suffer prior to sharing the gospel. From day one, after moving into our home and successfully assimilating into the Malayali rhythm of life, we started to notice discomforts in our lives. And after time, those small discomforts morphed into bigger discomforts that quickly transformed into persistent issues. And those persistent issues gradually turned into daily pain-inflicting problems. Problems that would have real-life consequences if not treated. Ultimately, those problems that incessantly persisted turned so ugly that we were forced to come home, willingly, but asked to come home to receive healing and recovery. We believe demonic forces that reside in Malayali spent the last six years scheming for the assault specifically on my family during these last eight months. But make no mistake, unbeknownst to them, God in the last six years has been, through hardship, through trial, and through pain, has been refining our character so we would have the resolve to remain in spite of the attacks on our family, and not just remain, but be able to proclaim the excellencies and the common grace that is given to all men through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would be there to see our friends not only hear, but receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. We came back uh, mid-December. And I wrote this in my journal. The first week back, looking back on this season. Emily reminded me, the Lord was both good and faithful to us during this season. This is true, both good and faithful, first by anchoring us to himself in the midst of a mighty storm, shielding us through intense time of spiritual warfare, and he was indeed our sun shining brightly, faithful to bring us through it all, mentally scarred, physically near death, but not destroyed. Daily feeling empty of energy, lacking resources and momentary answers for physical pain and ailments, But never once did he withhold himself. Therefore, he never once withheld from us any good. For in this last season, he gave us the best of all things, the most luxurious good thing one could ever ask for. He gave us himself. This journey has never been easy, but it has been worth it. For we left all things because the message was too great not to share. And it has been our joy because the sender is too great not to obey. 
If this process was as easy as flipping on a switch, endurance would not be necessary. But our endurance was necessary. Because the duration of the time, the duration of time for the sun to actually rise is not measured in seconds or minutes, but it's measured in hours. And the time that it took for the gospel to come to the Malayali people, the Lord allowed us to endure and persevere. To the point of being able to see the success or the product of God's mission dawn on their faces. We got to see their joy. Their abundant, unexplainable joy. A joy that in spite of empty stomachs from a lack of food, their bellies were now full. No longer to live a life of fear, but one of assurance that Jesus, that what Jesus did, he did for them. Fully, finally, and forevermore. There is nothing that I need to do. Jesus did it all, is what they would say. No longer to walk in utter blindness, but to live in the light of confident conviction. For it is Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no other road I need to travel down. It's Jesus fully and finally and forevermore, is what they would say. No longer to live a life under the weight of oppression. For Jesus is the source of their satisfaction. He is our one and only joy. You see, the antonym of fear is assurance. The antonym of blindness is sight. But the antonym of oppression is not freedom. It's joy. And that is the product to God's mission. Isaiah told us this in verse 3 of chapter 9. This is what Isaiah said would happen. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. We know the place of origin. We know the priority of God's mission. This is the product. This is the future culmination, the future outcome of God's mission. It will be unending, everlasting joy. Isaiah's vantage point He is seeing that in the latter days, there will be such a joy. And he gives us the reason for this joy. Verses 4 through 6. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah is seeing the end. And although this invasion is coming, he's writing to the people of Israel saying there will come a time. Not only when the light will dawn in these places, but there will be an ever increasing unending joy. Because the oppression will cease. The oppressor will be defeated. 
A son will be given and he will be a king. He will rule and reign forever and ever and ever and ever. The son will rule visibly, fully, finally, and forevermore without an end. Isaiah will say the oppression will be over. The oppressor will be defeated. And they will say, what? What? How? How will the Lord put an end to the oppression? And Isaiah will say he'll end the war. He'll not just end the war, but he'll end all wars. And not just wars, but you'll dispose of your weapons. But we'll go a step further. You're not only going to get rid of your weapons, but you won't even need your clothes for battle. You're going to roll those up and use them for the fire. How? We echo Mary. How how will this be? Because he's sending a son. A child will be born. There will be unending joy because God delivered his people. God will deliver his people from oppression. And he will end the war and all wars. And he will do this. And his answer is this. He will do this through a child. How? The response should be, wait, what? But the plan is so simple, it's so sufficient, and it's so sustainable. Verse 4 says it's, it's as simple as the day of Midian. This is not going to be a hard battle. This is not going to be a devastating war this is as simply as you not taking out your sword this is you cracking a a pot and letting light shine and the army that is against you will consume themselves this is the battle of midian it's as simple as that you stand there you break your pot and you let the light shine it's as simple as that but it's sufficient it's not just simple it's sufficient The accomplishment of this said plan through the Son would be utterly sufficient so as you're not only disposing of your weapons, you're getting rid of the battle clothing. And it is so sustainable. His kingdom will never decrease, only increase. His mind will never change. He'll only be faithful and good. He'll rule in justice and righteousness. And he will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. And so what are the people doing? Isaiah seeing the end, the future culmination of God's redemptive work among the nations. Where it began, what was the priority, what was the product, it was their joy. What are the people doing? In verse 3, they are joyously singing before him. It sounds a lot like Revelation 7, 9 and 5, 9. They are joyously before him singing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive all honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. The mission of God will end. But when Isaiah said this, they were looking for this child 
At this time, the people would have to wait roughly eight centuries for the Messiah to be born. The three and a half months that we taught the Maliali people, starting from Genesis to Revelation, they had to wait about two months. But boy, were they eager to see who this son would be. I remember looking at my best friend saying, for so long you all have waited for your happiness to come. Thinking what? What is the something that will come to give us happiness? Today I get to tell you clearly, you will not find your happiness in something. You will find your happiness in someone. And from that moment, they began to look at every single Old Testament figure. And they would ask us immediately, is he the one? Is he the one? Man, we looked at Adam. He was a part of lesson 4 through 11. We saw him dwelling in the garden with God. Happily, the first man, happily, the first man and woman in their perfect state of innocence innocence they saw this and this is everything that they have ever wanted this is all the happiness and all the peace and the friendship that they've ever longed for for the first time they saw their beginning the first time they saw their ancestors and they wanted what they had they saw this and they were eager to know more but we know the story sadly they saw that because of the sin of man Paradise and a perfect state of innocence was lost. A lady in Malayali, after hearing lesson 10, the problem of sin and them running away, hiding from the Lord. I have heard what you said and I'm crying to myself. I'm crying because I see that I have sin and I can't do any good to cover it like they tried. What are we going to do? What road can I make to fix this problem? I'm waiting for you to tell me what I must do to fix this. In lesson 12, we said, through the line of woman, looking at Genesis 3.15, through the line of the woman, she will bring forth life, and there will come one in whom our sin will be able to be removed. Satan's head will be crushed, and he will be able to get us back to a restored and right relationship with God like it previously was in the garden. This is his promise. Oh, I can't move from my seat, they said. I just sit here and think, what am I going to do to fix this sin problem I have? You tell us we can't, but God can. I saw today his road. This man who will come and help us, I'm thinking about him. Will he come soon or are we still waiting? He's the one that I'm thinking about. They also said, for the first time, I'm seeing myself clearly. I'm a man full of sin. Everything that is in my head, all my thoughts of my heart, all my actions are sin-filled. I'm waiting for the good news you all have promised is coming. And so they began to have a hopeful expectation of seeing a child born. We looked at Noah Lessons 13 through 16. They saw after the line of Adam and Eve began to multiply. Oh, friendship with the Lord was not a common thing. More to the point, mankind was completely corrupted by sin, engulfed by it and its practices. And so the Malayali people looked to Noah, the only friend of God. 
And they wondered, could he be the promised one? Could he be the one who will come and remove our sin, crush the head of Satan, and get us back to the Father? Seeing the redemptive story of Noah and the ark of God, the hopes of the Maliali rose quickly, but fell just as fast. Because although God used Noah in a savior-like way, saving the created, saving the created order, Noah would be of no help to the Maliali people. Look, they said, God's word came up just as he said it would. When he makes a road, those who follow it are happy to be rescued. Noah and his family looked back on what happened and they were happy. They got off the boat, lifted up God's name in thanks. If God sent a flood on them for their sin, what is he going to send to cover us up? Can we make a right sacrifice for the good animal? No. Can we build a boat? What do you guys think? No. No. Our ancestors gave us so many roads to follow. Were any of them right? No. Whatever God, whatever road God makes, that's the true road. But what kind of road will God make for us to be rescued from our sin? And from going to the place of created fire. You said this one, this child will come. How long will we need to wait? We saw the consequence. Noah's family, Noah's family lines disobedience. That they were not multiplying and being fruitful and filling. That they were multiplying and being fruitful. But they were not filling up the land. They became city builders wanting to lift up their own name. And throughout this story, as we began to see character after character and story after story from lesson 17 to 31 and getting to Moses, they they constantly ask the question, when will he come? When will the one come who will give us happiness, who will remove our sin, who will crush the head of Satan, And who will bring us back to God. They saw Moses. And his rescue of the people of. In Egypt the people of Israel. But they later saw that Moses would be of no help to them. They saw the decline of Israel as a people. And they got to see showcased. God's gracious loving kindness. That he continually dispensed. To an ever disobedient people. Always turning to evil. Always seeking their joy among the nations. Rather lifting up his joy. Or rather lifting up his name and finding their joy in him. As Israel continued to give herself over to the nations. Longing for everything that they had. Kings were now asked to rule among them. Earthly kings. They placed their hope in these kings. They forsook the Lord and began to appoint kings. Although some appointed kings came up as bright and shining stars, their fall was all the more explosive. They placed their hopeful expectation on David. The Malayala people saw David and said, he's the one. This is the one we're waiting for. He meets all the criteria. This is going to be our king. But... They soon quickly saw the downfall of King David. Although David was not going to be the road-cutting man, through his kingly line, the promised road-cutting king would come. 
Time and time again, each king proved to be just a sin-filled man constantly covering the people in calamities, which led, Isaiah 9, to their captivity. Invaded, taken away as slaves. But the Lord would remain faithful. His promise would bear fruit. A seed would come born of a woman. We continued to say this. We would say, like David, but really, really different. The road-cutting man will not just be a conquering king, but his kingdom will never end. His kingdom will be unstoppable. His rule will be unshakable, and his reign will be from everlasting to everlasting. The Maliali people walked away saying, he's coming up. You're saying he's coming up. You said in three days we will know him by his name. The people of Israel chose to follow their own thinking and look where it got them. You asked, will we bow our knees before him or will we hide and run away because of our sin? David, we're going to bow our knees to him. Is there anyone like him? No one is like him. And we turn the pages of scripture and we began in Matthew chapter 1. And they saw for the first time the promised king, the lineage, the one to come, the promised one. His name is Jesus. This is Jesus in whom all the Old Testament sacrificial pictures pointed to. He's the one all the prophets prophesied concerning. He will be the one to take away the sin of his people. He would be the one to crush the head of Satan. And he will be the only one who can restore humanity back to a right relationship with God. He is named Jesus. For he will save his people from his sins. From their sins. Specifying what he will do. And he is Emmanuel. Specifying who he is. He is God. Here in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is not just a better king. He is the best king there ever was and ever will be. He's not the one to come and just sit on the throne, but he left a throne stooping down to wage a war against Satan, sin, and death. And roughly nine months later, this promised son, the coming king, the road-cutting man, was born. His birthright is that of kingship. And thereby, his birth announces a divine declaration for war. After lesson 35, the Malayali people walked away saying, His name is Jesus. He's the only one through whom God will cut the road in getting his people back. Is there any other road? And everybody would answer, No way. Jesus was born to a woman who knew no man, and yet God's strength, Jesus was born. He wasn't born like us. He was perfectly clean on the inside. Therefore, he is the only one who can save us dirty ones. And then in lesson 36, they saw Jesus being baptized. They saw for the first time Jesus as their promised Savior. Because Jesus in Matthew 3 is like Noah. For Jesus came to proclaim and announce a coming judgment and all could be saved from it but jesus is not noah because noah called everyone to come into the ark jesus is the personification the representation of the ark itself because jesus did not call those to go somewhere else jesus called all to himself 
He is both the proclaimer and the rescuer for his people. And the material that completely cleansed the planet is the same material, the water that he went into and out of. And as he came out, the sky opened, the dove descended, and the father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Like the dove returning, like the dove returning to Noah with the olive leaf to say the flood waters are at an end, the dove comes down and rests on Jesus to say the end of Satan, sin, and death is here. Jesus. They looked at Jesus and they said, Oh, what a savior. What a savior. The Malayali people walked away saying, The people of Jesus' time were so blind to what God's one true road was. They thought, Here's a road, here's a road, here's another road, here's another road. And look, even the religious men of Jesus' day, They thought they could just obey the law and they would be good. But no, that was not his one true road. God said, here, he's here, y'all. Look, this is my son and I'm happy with him. That's what God the Father said. He showed all his road and he showed us. That's our road too. And in lesson 37, they saw Jesus in the wilderness. They saw Jesus as the promised road-cutting man. They saw him not just perfectly innocent of mind like Adam was, but he was absolutely perfect in every respect, individually and communally. Jesus did everything Adam couldn't do. Jesus did everything Israel didn't do. Israel spent 40 years trying to obey the Lord. Jesus did it in 40 days. Not only was Jesus the representation for communal Israel, but Jesus was now the new replacement for Adam. That everything that Adam didn't do, Jesus did. Because he's the one that finally said, Satan, leave. Something that Adam should have did immediately, but he didn't. Jesus, in the wilderness, obeyed his father perfectly. They walked away saying, Jesus is the road-cutting man who can remove our sin. He is the road-cutting man who can get us all back to God the Father. Jesus is our big brother who didn't follow his own thinking or his own way. No way. He followed his father's words. Jesus isn't the same as Adam. He wasn't the same as Cain. He's not the same as the people of Babel or Moses or the Israelites or all of their kings. No way. Jesus is completely different, better clean, obedient, bright. He is God. He is strong. And he's going to be the king who will have no end. Satan tried and tried, but Jesus was better. And so what did this king who will have an everlasting kingdom, this savior who will unite all things in heaven and on earth, people and all of creation. This liberator of people out of oppression. What did he do? We turn the page and we see that the first thing that Jesus does is he gets up and leaves and he goes into the towns of Zeblon and Nephetali. 
And it says he did this because the light has dawned on these two places. You know what Jesus did when he showcased who he was? He launched his father's mission. That light would come up in utter darkness. We have the taste of Isaiah 9. The dawning of Isaiah 9. Not the fruition. The mission of God still exists today. It's not over. Unending joy, increasing joy. Oh, we're tasting it. We're seeing it. But he will visibly descend and he will rule and reign forever and ever. And we, unending joy, will throw the weapons and our battle clothes away because the wars are over. Oppression will cease and the oppressor will be defeated. Jesus breaks the horizon of darkness where the invasion first started centuries ago. He brings light to the darkness. He launched his father's mission. And at lesson 45, they see the Savior beaten and whipped and spit on. And they say, why? In lesson 46... They see it clearly and they see Jesus' dead body and they say, that's my sin. The Malayalis say that he took my place. His blood spilled to remove my sin. He died to take my punishment. He did this for us because he loves us. There's no way. It's, It's too sweet. It's too good. He is our road, our only road. Our payment of death fell on him. He died so that we could come close to God forever. Thank you. You see, Malayali was not the first place for the bright and brilliant light of the gospel to dawn on them. No, Malayali for sure was not the first and they will not be the last. But friends, Malayali was at least one of them. And by God's good grace, they heard the name of Jesus. They saw the light of the gospel being proclaimed through his scriptures clearly, and they believed it. And for the first time, they experienced true, everlasting joy for the first time in their history. And we wrote to you all, after years of living among the Malayali and learning their language and their culture to fluency, we began to meticulously prepare 56 lessons that would span the distance from Genesis to Revelation in order to teach them the greatest news ever. And so far, having presented 47 of those lessons, we have finally finally arrived at the apex of the gospel, the resurrection. Without the resurrection as Christians, we are most to be pitied, but because of the resurrection, we are the most privileged For Jesus did everything we couldn't do. He lived the life that we couldn't. He died the death that we deserved. And he gave us everything we could have never earned on our own. Freely he did this for us. Graciously he gave it to us. And joyfully he finished his work. So that we could be fully, finally, and forevermore his. On this day, we are so overjoyed as a team to say that there are now Malayali men and women who have placed their belief on Jesus, the road-cutting man. Some of our dearest friends have passed from death to life, from the clan of Satan into the clan of our beloved God, and we are just so thankful 
We give all the glory and honor to our God and Father who, before time even began, made a way for men and women from all places and with many different tongues to get back to him. Thank you, Jesus, for cutting this road and making all this possible. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for illuminating your truth and using our feeble words to showcase your power over the hearts of men. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, living way. All who have fasted, prayed, and who have faithfully given all these years to see the Malayali people reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are thankful, and they are thankful as well. Sincerely, team Malayali. The Lord allowed us to see the product of his mission, the exceedingly great and seemingly unexplainable joy that the gospel gives to believers. The Malayali people received him as king for the very first time. It was like seeing them harvest food supply, seeing that that food was more than what they had expected, then seeing that there's so much they won't be able to consume it, and that there's so much that they will never be able to consume it. An unexplainable, unending joy. The yoke of their burden and the rod of their oppressor was completely broken, simple as the day of Midian. They received the son, they bowed their knee to him as their king, and now, and now, right now, they're sitting under his kingship, learning not only how to live in his kingdom, but that they are heirs according to it, according to the inheritance that they have in Jesus Christ, their perfect older brother, their only savior, the son of David, their true and forever king, and now your brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for partnering with us in something that seemed ridiculously ambitious. But do you know something that God has done in me in the last month? Something that he has made resoundingly clear. And he brought me to Isaiah 9. Because when we look at the mission of God, when we look at the thousands of people groups who have not yet heard his gospel, the utter darkness that still exists in the world today, and, and we read Isaiah 9 and we think, man, the culmination of this mission that will be finished will have unending joy and Jesus will visibly rule and reign for all of eternity and we will sing his praise and it will be a glorious event for all of eternity. Our joy will continue to increase we just say, how? We look back at this season, this small eight-month span of being able to create lessons and, and give them to the Malayali people for the very first time, presenting the gospel for the very first time, and now we look at it and we say, how? How did this happen? How did God use us? And Isaiah gives the answer to the people of Israel because they're, at this point, probably asking themselves, 
We're about to go under captivity. We're about to be invaded. How is he going to do this? And you know what he says? Isaiah says at the very end, at the very end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord will finish his mission. The Lord will finish his mission because he is consumed by it. Because he is in love with the people that he scattered from Genesis chapter 10. This is not, I put a rainbow in the sky so that you will remember, but rather he is speaking through Isaiah to the people. If you see the magnitude of this task, don't lose heart. Don't become afraid. Understand this. I am going to do this. I will bring light to the darkness and there will be incredible, increasing, unending amounts of joy and a son will be given and he will rule and reign forever. I will do this. I will finish my mission. This is a promise to sacrifice all things for. A promise to hold on tightly, not just for the comfort of going, but to hold on to this promise in order to persevere. For the success of his mission is ours, not because we have anything to bring to the table, but that he will see it through. He is the one who is offering you the privilege and the blessing to be a part of it. The Malayali walked away saying at the very end, in lesson 56, Revelation 19 through 21, the Malayali people walked away from this lesson saying, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back and he's going to get us. He has us now but he's coming back to get us. And we will happily, we will be happily laughing and smiling, dwelling together with him forever and ever. We will be happy, but our happiness will increase and continue to do so every day. When he comes, he will defeat Satan. He will get rid of death and sin and will no longer cause any more problems. Come, Jesus, come. You are our only road. This is why from this day forward, we are pointing everyone to him, saying, go to him, go. He is the only one who can rescue you. Our father will finish his mission. He loves the world more than we do. Desires all people without distinction to know him by name. And when we see the task that remains, it should not lead us into distress or worry, but we should passionately be engulfed to pursue its end because he is passionately, zealously pursuing its end. May our heart beat like our Father's heart is beating. May he be made known through our efforts to the outermost parts of of the world. I am so privileged and so grateful to say, man, I think it's time for you all to pick a new people group because the Malayali people, through your investment, through your fasting, through your prayer, they have received the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are brothers and sisters now. 
thank you so much for your investment into the endeavor of reaching the Malayali people. They have been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was through your partnership and through God allowing us to all be a part of what he's doing among the nations. Thank you.